Sorry, I'll get myself organised in a moment. Here we are. Well, the rise in popularity of social media has produced a whole new career. Social media influencer can actually be a career. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, a social media influencer is someone who, because of their popularity or maybe their knowledge, uh, influences people's opinions and behaviour. And businesses are willing to pay them to use their products and to tell their followers about it. So nowadays, kids actually see it as a valid career opportunity. I'm going to be a YouTube creator. That's what they say. Uh, so who influences you? We are surrounded, like no other time in the history of the world, by, by voices and opinions. But who or what influences you? Your family, your friends, work colleagues, academic authorities, perhaps your teachers or university lecturers, governments and politicians, print media. Do you remember that? Newspapers? I used to read them. Peter's shaking his head. TV or streaming services. Podcasts. Are you influenced by podcasts? What about social media? or advertising. When you think about it, we are just surrounded by people who want to influence us and want us to fit in, who want us to compromise, to think what they think, to do what they do. Now, among all those loud, persistent voices, where does God fit in? As God speaks to us through his word, the Bible, speaks to us by his Holy Spirit who lives in us, speaks to us through his people, the church. Where does that voice fit in? Just like Israel and Cain, and we are surrounded by influences. Our lives may not be threatened, but the danger to compromise is just as dangerous. So we need to pay special attention to the book of Judges, to God's people Israel, so that we can learn from them, specifically, I think, learn from their mistakes, but learn from them. Well, the book begins at a major turning point. Have a look. Hopefully you're following there, Judges chapter 1, uh, following there in your Bible. The very first phrase, after the death of Joshua. Uh, we are a generation into the occupation of Israel in the Promised Land. God had brought them out of Israel, uh, sorry, out of Egypt with Moses as their leader. They wandered for 40 years. Moses dies within sight of the Promised Land. And God puts Joshua in charge. And it's Joshua's job to lead the people into Canaan and conquer it with God's help. Joshua's job to drive out the nations. Now mostly, when Joshua's around, the people do fairly well. They cross the Jordan River, God stops the water flowing, the city of Jericho, God destroys the walls and they conquer the city easily. There's plenty of other successes, read them in the book of Joshua, where the people do exactly what God commands. When Joshua's around, they do well. He's the positive influencer, if you like. Uh, listen to how the book of Joshua ends. Uh, doesn't quite come up in white, that's my fault, but hopefully you can read it anyway. Israel, uh, Joshua 24:31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived them and who'd experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Do you see the influence? By example and command, Joshua encouraged the encourages the people to serve the Lord. And there's even a hint about what it is that fuels, what motivates that loyalty. Uh, those who'd experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. 
You see, it's as we remember with thanks what God has done in the past, we're motivated to follow and obey him in the present. Uh, Romans 12, we saw it a couple of months ago. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. As we remember God's grace, it fuels our trust and obedience. And that was the case with this generation of Israelites. It's a verse that tells us how things go well when Joshua's around, but do you notice it also hints that it's not going to go so well with the next generation? Things went well as long as Joshua was alive, but we're thinking, gee, what's, what's going to come after Joshua? It's a little bit like if I asked you if it's going to rain on the weekend and you say, well, it won't rain on Saturday. In other words, but Sunday's a different story. And it's like that here with this verse, I think. It's a a little hint. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the other elders. Can't say the same thing about what's going to happen when they die. And so at the end of the book of Joshua, uh, we turn the page to this next book in the history of Israel and our expectations are already slightly lowered. And they're only reinforced, I think, by this first phrase in the book of Judges after the death of Joshua. Uh Uh-oh, the teachers left the room. (laughs) This is the next generation uh, who grow up without the influence of Joshua. They grow up not knowing warfare, not seeing God miraculously provide manna, not seeing the spectacular pillar of cloud or fire. Will this new generation continue to be committed or will they be influenced? We're only one phrase in, but we've already got questions in our minds. Will they serve the Lord or the gods around them? Will they be a generation of regeneration or degeneration? Well, as we keep reading, things go well. Judah, we begin in the south. They join with the tribe of Simeon, verse 3, and they start to take their share of land from the Canaanites. God is with them, verse 4. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. There's no hint of compromise there. God says do it, they do it, completely destroying their enemies. Even their king, Adonai Bezek, verse 6, he fled, but they chased him and caught him. Did you notice this? They cut off his thumbs and big toes. Uh, No deals, no compromise. Now, it sounds brutal, it sounds inhumane to our ears. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that God would expect his people to do in obedience. But notice something fairly important. Adonai Bezek isn't being treated unfairly. He's getting exactly what he deserves. This is justice and even he acknowledges it. Verse 7, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Is it only me who thinks, how do you pick up scraps without thumbs? I I don't know, maybe that's just me. But he's really saying, fair enough, isn't he? Uh, I've been caught, fair cop. Uh, I've done the same thing and now it's come back. Judah gives Adonai Bezek what he spent his life giving other people. This is exactly what God wants. You see, removing the local nations from Canaan does two things. Sure, it removes the bad influences from Israel, but it also delivers God's justice. It's giving cruel pagans like Adonai Bezek 
the punishment they deserve. And God actually said that same thing back in Deuteronomy chapter 9 as Israel was about to enter the land. And he said to them, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land. You're not particularly good, but on, the, on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God will drive them out before you. The nations deserve the punishment that God brings, including Adonai Bezek. Well, as Judah's campaign continues, verses 8 to 18, we'll see that they're single-mindedly committed to obeying God. They destroy anything that might influence them, that might tempt them to follow the local gods. But even with Judah, there's a hint that everything's not quite right. There's a hint that when we look at the other tribes, things are not going to be quite so good. Look at verse 19, verse 19 of Judah chapter 1. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Now, isn't there something jarring about that? Something that doesn't seem quite right? I reckon if this was a movie and the, the narrator was saying these words, at this point you'd get the, the music changing. It had changed from the major key to the minor key or it had changed from something positive to something a bit creepy. Or maybe there'd be silence and the crickets would chirp. <laughs> this is the God who parts the Red Sea, who stops the Jordan River, who collapses the walls of Jericho. Iron chariots are going to stop him? Of course they're not. So what's the problem? Why do iron chariots stop God's people from doing what God says? Is this the beginning of compromise? Judah beginning to doubt uh, their God. Well, there's no commentary. There's no solution provided by the writer. He just states it, but it sets up a nagging doubt, I think, for us as readers about how well Judah's actually going to go. How well are they committed rather than compromise, uh, compromising? Well, from verse 21, with that little hint, that little seed in our minds, uh, we move from Judah to the other tribes. And our suspicions confirm pretty quickly, verse 21, because the sad thing is Judah's the best of the lot and it just goes downhill from here. Most of the other tribes... Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali and Dan, they're not committed to God the way Judah was. They're not interested in belonging to God alone. They're happy to do deals, to be influenced, to compromise. Like verse 22, the house of Joseph. Which you might remember, it's two half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. They attack a city called Luz, or Luz. They capture it, they rename it Bethel. But to do it, they have to do a deal with a local who shows them the secret entrance in. So they let him go. And what does he do? Verse 26, he heads down the road, builds another city, calls it the same thing, Luz, the same name with the same Canaanites and the same pagan idols, and he's just down the road from the city they've just conquered. It's not like Judah, with their no-deals-no-compromise approach, the house of Joseph show they're just happy to give in and let the pagans live down the road with their idols and their wickedness. 
At least this tribe had some success. As we read on, we find that the other tribes don't have success at all. Verse 21, the Benjaminites, they couldn't dislodge the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Or verse 27, we read about Manasseh. They couldn't drive out the Canaanites from their cities. What's the reason? Because they were determined to live there. What sort of weak excuse is that? It's like Manasseh can't be bothered. Oh, well, we asked nicely and they said no. So we thought, okay, we'll just stay where we are. We'll stay living in tents. It doesn't mean enough to them. They don't see any problem with the influence of the nations. They're more worried about upsetting people than they are standing up for what God says. Verse 29, it's the same with Ephraim. The Canaanites just continue to live right there next to them. Or verse 30, Zebulun. Or verse 31, Asher. Or verse 33, Naphtali. Or Dan in verse 34. Have a look down at Dan. They can't be bothered moving down from the hill country at all. They don't bother coming down to the inhabited areas. They just stay up in the mountains. The Amorites confine them to the hill country. But did you also notice, it's not that the tribes couldn't drive out the Canaanites. Verse 28 says that when they became strong, they pr- what did they do? They pressed the Canaanites into forced labour. Verse 30 says it. Verse 33. Verse 35 says it. It's like the author's trying to tell us something. They can do what they should do. They can drive them out completely. They don't lack the power... They just lack the the will. It's not that they can't, but that they can't be bothered. They're successful, but disobedient. They look healthy on the outside. They've got the, the ability. The problem is on the inside. The problem's with their hearts. And I reckon there are plenty of churches and plenty of Christians like that today who look successful on the outside but are disobedient, who don't have the will to do what God wants, to be different. Well, what's God think? He's not impressed. Into chapter 2. He's angry about the fact they're listening to the voices around them, that they're being compromised rather than being committed. Chapter 2, verse 1, just after where Melba stopped for us. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? God had made a deal. I'll be your God, you be my people. I'll give you the land, you just have to take it. Just be faithful. And God's saying, I kept my side, but you haven't. Instead of breaking down the altars, you've made covenants with the people. And instead of keeping their covenant with God. And so verse 3 of chapter 2, we read that God will teach them a lesson. Because they refuse to drive out the Canaanites, God will refuse to drive them out. Which sounds a little circular, I think, but let's unpack that. Because they refuse to drive out the Canaanites, God will refuse to drive them out. He will actually keep the nations around Israel to discipline them, to prove his point. 
that compromise, it's not a soft, easy option. Compromise is actually dangerous. Compromise is deadly. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, Now therefore I tell you, I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. They're going to stay there, negatively influencing you, because you refuse to listen to me. And if you look at the second half of chapter 2, we didn't read it, but it shows how things turn out. It's really a summary, I think, of the whole book of Judges. Time after time, that's what the Canaanites were. They were a thorn in Israel's side. And their gods were a snare to them, made them stumble. Israel's compromise led to complete unfaithfulness. Remember back to what it said at the end of Joshua, that Israel served God as long as Joshua was alive. Well, just look for comparison at chapter 2, verse 10. After, the whole, after that whole generation, Joshua's generation, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, served the Baals, forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who'd brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. Israel failed the challenge. Instead of faithfulness, they let the customs and religions of the Canaanites influence them and they completely turn away from God. And we'll see how that plays out in weeks to come, but we're just sort of introducing the theme today. It's a sad story, but it's a story for us. If you're a Christian, then this is a story you need to hear because compromise is dangerous for Christians as well. Letting the world influence you will lead to disaster. I think we all know friends like this one I'm going to tell you about. Let me call her, uh, she was, she's a friend of mine, let me call her Joan. She was a solid Christian, went to a Christian school, played music at church. She was in youth group with me when I was leading. Uh, she had lots of Christian friends. She got a, a, an academic job offer overseas. Great career opportunity. There'd be long hours, it had been leaving her Christian friends behind, but it was a great opportunity. So she took it. And when she was there, she didn't have the same group of Christian friends, church was full of strangers, and day by week by week she just drifted away from church. There were so many nice people at work, so many uh, nice... She, she didn't seem to miss her Christian friends. She's come back to Australia, and, and it seems like she's given her faith away. So busy, God becomes irrelevant. Small compromises lead to complete faithlessness. Now, I'm sure all of you know people like that. People listen to other voices, other influences. One small step at a time, they compromise. Compromise in business dealings, tax returns, investments. Compromise on relationships. He's a non-Christian, but he's a nice guy. And I'll invite him to church. It'll be all right. Compromise on our priorities. Good things that become more important than God. Raising the kids. Saving for the house. A serious hobby or sport commitment that becomes more important than God. And gradually God's voice, God's influence becomes quieter. So that's the danger. What's the solution? Are we to separate ourselves from the world? 
Should we cancel the streaming services, unsubscribe from social media? Should we only go to Christian schools or work for Christian organisations? Should we only have Christian friends? Well, no. Listen to what Jesus prayed in Acts 17. Sorry, John 17. John 17. It's the night before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. He's leaving his disciples behind on earth and he prays to God, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of this world any more than I am of the world. You see, those of us who follow Jesus, who've become his children, who are filled with his spirit, we're not of this world anymore. We've been born again, we've been born into the kingdom of God. The message of the gospel about Jesus has changed us. Our influences are different. Our priorities are different. But that doesn't mean we're to to abandon the world. Jesus' Jesus' prayer for them, uh, he continues, uh, verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, don't do that, don't take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Our mission is to be in the world, but not to be of the world, not to be overly influenced by the world. Jesus' plan for us is that there is to be interaction and engagement with the world, but not compromise or contamination. Interaction and engagement, but not compromise and contamination. It's a dangerous, risky strategy to to be in the world, but not of the world. There's the the danger to, to be influenced and compromised. And so Jesus prays that God would protect us from the evil one, from Satan, from the harm Satan would seek to do for us, the lies he would try to convince us with. There's a whole sermon in that on its own, but let's move on. Verse 17, Jesus moves from defence against the evil one to attack. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify means to make holy, to make separate. In this context, I think it's make them separate from the world, make them different. How does that happen? Well, Jesus says it's God's word that makes us different. You see, we're already different in our status, in our our core identity, when God makes us his children. We're already different. But Jesus is saying God's word will make us different by nature. God's word will sanctify us. That's why in our church vision that God, uh, that we want to be a church where God is transforming us and using us to transform the world, one of the seven sub-points there is that if God's going to transform us, we need to be deliberately and daily shaped by God's word. Deliberately and daily shaped by God's word. That's how God will sanctify us, how he, how he will transform us. Now, is that something you're committed to? Is your Bible something that is falling apart because it's well used, or is it gathering dust on your bookshelf? Is it a well used tool that God is influencing, uh, that God is using to transform you, to influence you, and shape you? 
As Romans 12 puts it, are we being conformed to the world or are we being transformed by the renewing of our minds? That's what this is talking about. Do you notice Jesus' plan about how his followers will not only be transformed but will transform the world? He prays in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That word for sent, it comes from the word for apostle. So it's not just the 12 who are sent into the world. We are small a apostles sent into the world, having been transformed by God's word, to transform the world. We are sent with a purpose, with a message of the gospel to influence the world. It's not a solo task, though. This is something we're meant to do together. We're meant to speak to one another. We're meant to remind one another of God's word. We're meant to remind one another of God's saving work in the past, just like Joshua and the other elders did for the people. When it comes to being influencers, we're to be influencers of one another so that together we may influence the world rather than be influenced by it. Now, let me finish with these words from Colossians 3, 16 and 17, and perhaps they might be a prayer for you uh, to make about us as a church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us a group of people that's just like that command from Colossians. That we would speak to one another in love, speak truth to one another. That would, uh, it would be words uh, from your word, words that are focused on Jesus, words which encourage and build us up so that we might speak to a world who needs to know Jesus. And we pray it all for his honour and glory. Amen.